This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 17th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Big tech firms like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, and others are increasingly thought of as monopolies and therefore are reasonable targets for being broken up or at least hamstrung in an effort to create more equitable markets. Ryan Bourne, in a new policy analysis, takes a look at even fairly recent history of claims for similar firms. So there's this massive company, Kodak. And I'm thinking about buying some stock. They seem completely, totally indomitable based upon my readings of, you know, 1940s newspapers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what, what are you gonna t- what are you gonna tell me? Buy? Don't buy? Sell? 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 Well, for decades, Kodak did seem a completely dominant company in not just the amateur photography business, but the associated film business as well. And they developed an incredible model where they charged relatively low prices for their cameras, uh, made very high markups on the film associated with them. And obviously bundling those products together was incredibly profitable for them. You know, as uh, as early as 1920, I think Kodak had 94% of the domestic film market and 96% of the, of camera sales. So, you know, incredibly dominant company. But I think this is a great example of the phenomenon that I'm trying to get across in my paper. And that if you'd have looked at this sector and looked at the huge economies of scale that a firm like Kodak was able to generate through that process and specialize in, it really did look like an unassailable monopoly. And many people were making that case. It was associated with the camera industry in the same way that Google, we talk about to Google uh, to mean to search um, on the internet. But what the, the company didn't foresee was the possibilities that um, digital cameras would completely disrupt um, the market. Even though the the company actually developed the first digital camera, it was serving uh, kind of niche end markets with that technology and didn't see its mass market appeal. And there was resistance internally from moving to that model because of the the, the specialisms and the profitability of 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 the film sector. So the camera technology sector is an incredible example of how competition is dynamic over time and how completely new products can disrupt and overturn existing firms. We saw it first with with Kodak getting overturned by the digital camera market. And now, of course, we've seen a huge decline since roughly 2010, 2011 in digital camera sales as phones have integrated that technology into them. All right. So um, this story is told over and over and over again, which is a large firm appears to be dominant, appears to have monopoly qualities uh, in in terms of, you know, just as sheer dominance of, of a market. And yet so many of these firms have gone away uh, and have, have faded quickly. Like the, the collapse of Kodak, it, it seemed like it happened over a long period of time, but it also happened pretty suddenly, it seems. Yeah, I think that's right. And the why this is important in today's debates is that we're currently having this huge discussion about Google, Amazon, Facebook, um, and, and Apple. And these companies are often described as monopolies because they are dominant, overwhelmingly dominant in some cases in the sectors if you define them in, in, in certain ways today. Um, I think the interesting thing and what I was trying to bring out in this paper, though, is that there are many examples in industries related to today's tech giants. You know, when you think of retail in the longer term, you think of 
camera technology, search, browsers, and all these other, and music, all these other industries that these companies are involved in. There's been lots of instances in the past where um, economic phenomena related to those sectors, uh, the buildup of network effects, economies of scale, tying or bundling of products together, extensive data collection, has been said to be a phenomenon that will lead to this company not just being dominant today, but becoming more and more dominant in future. And we're seeing at the moment a big push for people to say, well, there might not be consumer harm by these big tech firms at the moment, but if we allow them to go on unimpeded by antitrust authorities, um, these economic phenomena mean that they're basically going to become unassailable in the in the longer term. And what I try to do in this paper is go back and and look at these examples of dominant firms over the last century, um, which were dominant precisely for these economic reasons that we hear that, that today's tech companies will dominate for for a long period. So when we think about uh, as a technical matter and Antitrust means a lot of things to a lot of people, uh, and the people who would like to to have all these firms hauled into court and have them broken up, et cetera, they might want that for very different reasons. Uh, so when we think about how uh, to evaluate whether a company is a monopoly or has monopoly characteristics uh, for the purposes of judging whether or not that firm has some advantage that simply cannot be overcome uh, without a government intervention. What are the things that we should be looking for? Well, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, one of the the main considerations is trying to define the market that the, the firm is operating in. That's the, the first rule of antitrust. It's the first rule of antitrust, but it's much more difficult um, in practice than in theory. Google, for example, makes you know most of its revenue as an advertising seller. Is Google primarily the best thought of then as a, an advertise, a part of the broader advertising market, the digital advertising market, or should we regard its sector it's operating in as a user search engine? Um, Facebook, um, should we think of Facebook primarily as a social network or again as an advertising space seller? Or perhaps we should actually break Facebook down into smaller components and say, well, it's competing in the market for uploading of photos, uh, for for um, linking people to friends, for storing contact information. There are whole lots of subsectors that we could divide it into. And, and you get very, very different answers to the degree of dominance of these companies depending on how you define that market. So that's the first point. The second point is that over the past 30 to 40 years or so, we've tried to judge not just whether firms are in a dominant position, but whether as a result of that dominant position, they are engaging in anti-competitive activities that are undermining what we can we uh, talk about as consumer welfare, and really that that incorporates um, the prices that they're charging, um, the degree of innovation um, in in the sector over uh, over longer periods, but uh, you know it, it's by and large thought about as whether the companies through the products that they're delivering, the prices they're delivering them at. Are, are harming consumers in some way. And at the moment, there's not much evidence that large tech companies undermine consumer welfare in any way. That's why lots of people very speculatively say, ah, but if we don't do anything about them now, given these economic phenomena that we're talking about, these network effects, economies of scale, and all of this other stuff, these companies are going to dominate for a long period of time, and that's when they can do the damage. All right. So uh, was that the argument that was put forth for IBM 
in the 80s and Microsoft in the 90s? Um, well, to some extent, yes. I mean, the Microsoft example is is quite funny and quite quaint when you think about it now. We had these browser wars between um, Microsoft with its Internet Explorer and, and Netscape. And many people at the time worried that Microsoft was kind of monopolizing because it was bundling its uh, Windows package which came with a pre-downloaded Internet Explorer. And people thought that using its market power of providing the operating system meant that Microsoft was going to not monopolize the browser market for a, for a long period of time. Of course, what happened then in the longer term is that Google came along and Google developed a, a browser that um, had many better features, was, was easier to use than than Microsoft's Internet Explorer, and as a result, completely overhauled the, um, the the browser market as we know it today. And if you go back and listen to what economists were talking about with um, Internet Explorer, they really did think that the network effects associated with that technology would mean that Microsoft would dominate forever. People said because um, web managers were optimizing their company's websites for Internet Explorer, that in a mature market, it would be incredibly difficult for any new company to come in and get enough users and enough optimization for a different browser such that people would be willingly make the shift. I think what that story really tells us is that, yes, network effects are a kind of big cost of entry for new firms competing with companies like Microsoft. But actually, if you do develop a whole new, uh, better product that is clearly superior, those network effects as people shift from from one company to another can lead to a very quick downward spiral in the same way that you can build up very quickly. Yeah, so I have uh, in my home multiple streaming devices. I've had in the past the Apple uh, TV product, the little box, a streaming box. I've had the Amazon Fire. I've had a Roku box or a Roku stick. And every company that is providing some streaming uh, product or their their own individual productions and that sort of thing, they all want to be on every platform. And so it's a weird situation where you have these companies that are we think we ought to be considering monopolies are extremely welcoming of trying to host everybody else's content, including their arch rivals, their fierce competitors, they're just trying to be the big box where everybody is able to get their stuff and there's no clear winner. Well, that can be a very good business model. You know, you want compatibility across um, devices for certain technologies. Uh, but I think you're, you've hit on a key point here, which is that these companies, even though they're described as being monopolies, they do actually engage in pretty fierce competition between themselves and try and kind of capture the lower ends of markets and try and um, uh, develop pro new products that grant access to certain technologies for consumers that currently aren't being served by the incumbents in, in many ways. And um, I think um, Apple is a, a, another really good example of this type of phenomenon that we're, we're talking about and, you know, talking about streaming. And it makes me think of the, the music sector. Today, lots of people complain, one of their big complaints about Apple is that on an iPhone, uh, Apple has developed, obviously, the, the app-based approach to, to software on phones. And people dislike the fact that Apple is said to monopolize um, 
the downloading of apps through its app store and it kind of prohibits downloading apps in in through other formats and people say that that bundling is unfair and gives apple a kind of gatekeeper monopoly um over over apps and your ability to download apps that it was only um 10 15 years ago that people were making very similar arguments about itunes and the ipod the ipod developed a technology such that only songs that were downloaded in the format available on iTunes were available to play for it and lots of uh, play on it and lots of people said that that tying was fundamentally unfair french authorities really went after apple for that but of course what happened in the longer term is that um people started to listen to their music on mobile you got the development of smart speakers and actually people over time decided what that what they wanted as consumers was to to pay subscription fees and have a whole music library available to them to listen to at any given time rather than downloading and owning individual songs. Yeah, I can remember Steve Jobs saying, people don't mind renting movies, but they want to own their music. And that turned out to be just completely wrong. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And you see these huge shifts in um, both technologies and the way that consumers want to consume certain products, you know, they they have big changes over time. Going back to the Kodak example, it wasn't that people all of a sudden didn't want to to take pictures as much as they did before. They just wanted something that was more convenient, something that they could carry around with them at any given time. And the the development of you know excellent camera technology on a mobile phone made taking photos much easier and much more manageable you didn't have to carry the stuff around with you you could upload instantly to the internet it incorporated that technology and you could share more easily than you could using either film or or, or then digital cameras Ryan Bourne occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. You can subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.